Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. My guest today is John Mabry who serves as the Director of Public Outreach for the Addiction Campuses and also hosts a podcast by the name of High Sobriety. He has a master's degree in counseling, is an award-winning speaker, an actor, and a stuntman with 12 years in the Screen Actors Guild. He's worked on such series as NCIS and ER and has a movie to his credit by the name of Superbad. His work has been featured on People Magazine, USA Today, and Access Hollywood. In addition to all of that, he's competed in triathlons. And the amazing part is all of these accomplishments followed a horrific car accident where a good friend of his was killed and his leg ultimately had to be amputated. Mabry struggled with addiction, depression, and PTSD over a decade following his leg amputation. And here to tell his story about his descent into addiction, his struggles with recovery, and a new life committed to helping others who struggle with addiction is John Mabry. So, John, welcome. Hey, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Okay. Pleasure to have you. So you came from what many would consider to be a a really a privileged background. So tell us about growing up in Texas and the events that uh, led up to really a life-changing experience in college. Yeah, so the best way for me to describe how I grew up is I would just say it was uh, easy. Life was easy for me. Things just came easy to me. Um, I had a great family, great support system. Um, You know, financial resources were, were, uh, you know, gratefully always there. Had most everything that I, you know, wanted. I definitely had everything that I needed. And um, life was just easy, man. I had no, no reason to you know, become the raging alcoholic and addict, uh, that, that I was with the, with the privileged lifestyle that I had. And, um, just really blessed to, to be able to travel a lot and, and, uh, and do things with, uh, with my parents and my brother, uh, growing up. So, and, uh, born and raised in Texas, uh, always be a Texan at heart and, uh, miss living there, but, um, I'm grateful to, uh, to have had a, a good upbringing there. So growing up, um, you probably, I get the impression that you did a little bit of partying, but things really never got out of hand. You made it to yeah. college then. And so, so tell us a little bit about that and on into your college years. Yeah, I was kind of a late bloomer, I guess, in high school with drinking. I, I kind of pushed it off as far as, you know, as long as I could growing up in Southern Baptist church. My grandfather was kind of a, um, well-known preacher and, in, in uh, in the Bible belt and, so I kind of pushed it off as far as I could, that peer pressure. And then finally, senior year in high school, started drinking. And I got to tell you, it made me feel like I was on top of the world. I mean, 
and I think a lot of people can relate to this. I didn't know it, and we'll we'll go we'll go into it later on about some childhood uh, trauma that I didn't even know existed. But as soon as I put alcohol in my system in high school, I just felt, oh my gosh, I could breathe the way that I felt I should have been breathing all along. Like it was a spiritual kind of experience. And uh, the funny story is the first time I got uh, drunk, I was with friends at the river and uh, I go and I puke into the river and my buddy Brad comes up and he puts his arm around me. He's like, hey, John, it's okay. The great thing about this is you can just throw it up. The water just washes it right down. You don't have to clean anything up. And it was almost a metaphor for my life. It was like, kind of like I could put, I could do whatever I wanted to to my body at this point. I could put in, take in whatever I wanted to. It didn't matter what came out because it was just going to kind of wash right down. And I didn't have to clean anything up. So it kind of set the tone for um, me move, move, moving on and graduating high school and going to college. Like you say, I had a, uh, went to Baylor University, you know, private Baptist University. Again, had had a good opportunity to to go to a good school where my parents went. Um, but things were manageable. Um, I did join fraternity, did the frat thing, um, had a really active social life. Um, grades were uh, pretty good. Graduated like a three, three, um, in communications. And so able to maintain grades. I worked, uh, my junior and senior year, I, I worked, um, senior year I was actually full time and I had built up this, ah, this feeling of invincibility. And then March 11, 2000 is when it all changed. It's when the uh, world literally got flipped upside down um, in a car wreck. Describe saw, that. So that was uh, a complete accident. Uh, there was no drinking or driving. No drugs or alcohol were involved. And um, we were coming back from the spring break trip. I had set up the spring break trip for like 45 friends and fraternity brothers and, and whatnot. And we were coming back from this booze cruise life couldn't have been going any better just coming back from Mexico out of New Orleans, you know, on the street, going back to Waco and tire blows out in a friend's car, just a freak deal. Tire blows out in an SUV and the car just starts shaking violently, just, just rattling. And my, my mind immediately goes to, this is not about to happen. I'm going to die right here. I mean, there's no way I'm not going to die because there's nothing that can stop this from, from happening. And as soon as we started drifting over, I was in the back passenger seat, um, three other friends in the car, right rear tire blows out, and we drifted off to the to the median. As soon as we hit the grass, the car did like a 180 and just started flipping. Oh. And so somehow my legs got out the window, oh. and uh, I could see it happening. I saw my legs getting crushed, and there's nothing I can do about it, trying to pull them in. And um, the car comes to a stop about you know five or six seconds later. We, we went across the median, across the interstate, into a field. Uh, witness reports say we rolled about uh, between six and 12 times. And so um, as soon as the car stopped, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, OK, one, I'm alive. Two, I'm about to die because it's about to blow up. Because every time a car rolls over 10 times in a, in a movie, you know, it, blow, it blows up. Sure. So I tried to get out as quick as I could. And the car's upside down. I undid my seatbelt and I, and I get my, my legs to the edge of the window and I looked down and I could see the bottom of my foot. The bottom of my foot had wrapped around. It was just kind of hanging on by some fibers in the shin area. The foot wrapped around. I could see the, the bottom of it. And so there's no way, obviously, I could stand. So I just threw myself out of the car and I crawled to safety. And um, the car never did never did blow up. But um, we ended up, uh, ended up helicopter landing on the side of the interstate to take my friend Ashley. They had to cut her out of the car. And uh, she passed away, and the helicopter didn't uh, didn't make it to the hospital. 
Um, her name is Ashley Furman and she was just 19 years old and, um, you know, didn't do a thing wrong. Uh, but that set me that those seven seconds just set my life on a whole different tra- trajectory and <clears throat> ultimately had leading to 14 surgeries that, that year. And since we're doing video, I'll go ahead and, uh, show the audience, uh, taking my prosthetic leg off. So, uh, this is, we're in a flip flop today. All right. <laughs> Working from home here, so casual uh, look, fair enough. Yeah, exactly. Got my casual flip flop, mm-hmm. and it's always good to have uh, rubber awesome. bands on the back and uh, make sure it doesn't fall off. And we've got some <laughs> Velcro on there, but uh, so I'm real fortunate to be able to to have you know access to good um, prosthetic care. But it was that that year, that was a tough year. You know, going coming from I had everything going for me, scholarship felt like a athlete felt like an a-lister in my head i was and then to go to living in mom and dad i was living in my dad's office at his house in a hospital bed with my mom changing my bedpan mm-hmm. you know to no social life no physical health it was all gone mental health just started to collapse and um i had a saving grace i had some painkillers i had something that could fill that void no matter how lonely i got no matter how painful it was no matter how isolated I felt, I could kind of get by, kind of got by with, um, with, uh, you know, access to plenty of painkillers. So, so what were you taking? Um, just hydrocone. Um, I wasn't taking yeah, back then. This was in 2000, 2001. I was having all my surgeries. They, they didn't have because some of the other, um, kind of designer ones, but <clears throat> pretty much just hydrocodone, Vicodin. Yeah. Okay. So what happened next? You got hooked on those pretty quickly, didn't you? So, well, the thing is I, I didn't – it wasn't a full-blown addiction at the time d- during those surgeries and things. I mean I had my parents there helping, and it wasn't really till I moved out. So I got um, – that year I had all those surgeries, and I opted to amputate. Infections kept coming back, and it was just going to be a lifelong issue. And they wanted to do bone graft, take bone out of my hip, and fuse my ankle. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm done. I'm checking out. Let's cut the problem off. The problems of the – dead weight I'm lugging around on this leg. Let's cut it off. I'm going to move on. And so I went into it naively thinking I'm just going to cut the problem off and all my problems are going to be solved. Well, well all I do had, is- That had to be a tough decision to make. To, uh, I mean, you know, that you had to have your, your heart set on, you know what, I'm, re- I'm going to recover. I'm going to hang on to this leg no matter what. I'm going to go down and, and everything's going to be fine. I've overcome other things before. I'm going to overcome this. How did you come to that decision? That had to be really well, difficult. It wasn't as hard as, as you think it would be because I was living in that pain all that, that whole year. And I told myself at the side of the accident, I was like, they're going to cut my foot off. I mean, I like voiced it to the people. I was like, I'm going to lose my leg. Look at it. It looks terrible. So there was always that in the back of my mind, I could lose this or there may be a chance. There may be a time to just let this thing go. So it was kind of always back there. Um, I'm glad I had a chance to try. You know, some people are in a traumatic car accident or motorcycle accident. Their leg gets ripped off right there. I'm glad I had a chance to try. Um, but it was draining. It was just, it was, it was sucking the life out of me. And I realized I could have a better quality of life letting it go. Um, after talking to a couple amputees, I didn't just, you know, wake up one day and go, let's just cut it off and move on. I, I did my research and mm-hmm. talked to prosthetic, you know, professionals and Hey, am I a good candidate for this? So, you know, you put in the research and you, you gather as much information as you can. Um, and ultimately I'm glad I did it, but I just traded one set of problems for another set of problems. And, uh, 
wasn't ready for it. <laughs> so it was really when I, I graduated six weeks after my amputation um, on a temporary prosthetic. I, I got my diploma there at Baylor. Everybody came out. Everybody was happy. And I moved off to Dallas to, to work my first job in Dallas. And it was that's when addiction really started. That's when it really skyrocketed um, because there was a di- – uh, I talk about this uh, a lot on my podcast and, and, and a lot of my talks around town and, and around the country is uh, the disconnection piece. I know you've interviewed Johan Hari mm-hmm. um, and Johan Hari has been on, on my podcast on high sobriety as well. And talks about the disconnection piece. When we're disconnected, we're more likely to uh, struggle to, uh, for addiction to come and stay in. And so once I left Baylor, once I left you know, everything that I knew that was comfortable to me to move off into the real world and I just had my leg amputated, um, I – I was scared. I was terrified. And here's another aspect that uh, I don't know if, if you and I have talked about um, previously, but talking about that athlete feel that like I, f- I felt like an A-lister. Mm-hmm. Um, my accident was part of a Firestone Ford Explorer rollover. Um, and mm-hmm. back in 2000, 2001, they recalled millions of Firestone tires. Right. Tread was separating off them. We were part of that before the recall. So you can imagine um, I go in the day before I graduate, just had my leg amputated six-week fire. Family's coming into town to watch me graduate. The evening before, I sit down at Schlotsky's in Waco, Texas with my dad, and we met my attorney there to sign the settlement papers. And so you give a 22, 23-year-old kid who's hopped up on painkillers and alcohol, who just cut his leg off, who's about to go into the real world with a seamlessly endless you know, pocketbook, um, didn't make for a good recipe for success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> recipe for disaster. Yes, yes, because I went out going, man, I've got this. I got this. Nothing can stop me. I can get whatever I want, do whatever I want, and I don't have to clean anything up. That was kind of the, you know, that, that's kind of what my psyche was uh, wired for at that point in time. So, but at that point, you were geared up mentally to start start this new life. Conquer, you, man. You did that. You went out there and you just went. Uh, well, you were, had some great success early on. I mean, I'm just like I said, things just kind of came easy to me earlier in life, and it, it just seemed to kind of roll once I once I kind of got out into the real world. Um, I stayed in Dallas less than a year, and I moved out to San Diego to start working on a master's in counseling. Um, and I, my addiction to painkillers, alcohol, and then as I moved out to California, I got on Adderall. Um, for uh, the PTSD and things that I was undiagnosed for over a decade were getting to me. And so I, it was hard to focus and hard to stay on task. And so then I got on Adderall. That was just another, you know, medication that I found that I could abuse really easily, um, which led to sleeping pills because I couldn't sleep because the Adderall I'm taking. And then I'm, oh, it just turned into a cocktail of just substances. So it's so very that was interesting. Your, your choice there, very interesting. You, you're on a cocktail of, of different drugs and you're, you're addicted and yet as far as your uh, curriculum is concerned, you're becoming a counselor. Exactly. This double life, right? Yeah. And, and as you brought up earlier, we're talking is, man, this uh, juxtaposition of, man, I, I'm this goody two-shoe boy. I was brought up in a good home. I had you know everything given to me and then I had more money given to me, you know? So I had everything that I wanted, everything that I needed, and yet uh, behind the scenes, I was this uh, becoming more and more filthy and dirty and lying and stealing from people. You know, I'm going to people's houses and stealing their medications, and um, I mean, I'm literally going to go into people's houses who I knew when they weren't home, 
and take medications from them that oh, know that they needed. What happens next? Yeah, so I, man, I joined this this group called the Challenged Athletes Foundation. I'm a huge supporter of them out of San Diego. We raise money to get people with physical disabilities access to sports. And so I started volunteering there for field hours for my graduate program and turned into a, a part-time then a full-time job. And so I was out and about in the community. I was doing talks. I was sharing uh, my amputation story, you know, and I was uh, doing sports. I was doing triathlons, um, started doing some skydiving, uh, doing things that uh, I got to go to the ESPYs. We had some some of our athletes win ESPY award in 2005. So I'm backstage at the ESPYs. I mean, I was moving and shaking. I was hanging out with, you know, Bill Walton, NBA legend Bill Walton and and uh, a lot of these athletes that would that would come into our world to get the you know uh, Robin Williams met Robin Williams a number of times. He was a big supporter of what we were doing. You're back and running so, with the A-listers again. Yeah, I'm back, man. I'm back in the game, you know. And but again, there's that. Hey, I got I'm this goody two shoe guy. You know, I, I got a, a clean cut all American look, but I'm stealing from people. I'm 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 you know doing whatever I can to go find score marijuana you know somewhere from somebody. Um, when I ran out of my pills, I've driven down to Tijuana numerous times to go score more pills out of Tijuana. Um, you know, yeah, that, it, it's a it's a filthy place to be. It's a dirty place to be. But I almost had to keep going to cover up the shame and the guilt. So then there's just shame and this guilt. I'm not living up to my potential. I'm supposed to be a counselor. I'm supposed to be helping people. I'm helping kids with disabilities run around on new prosthetics, and I'm I'm actually setting up clinics for kids to learn how to run for the first time. Here I am on the surface and I'm hung over from the night before. I probably smelled like alcohol, you know, some of the times. Um, so it was just a uh, exhausting. It was exhausting. It really was. So with all this success, all this money, all these A-list people, the, uh, a number of people that are famous around you, um, the lifestyle as well as the the uh, the drugs are all intoxicating. Mm. What? How did you finally break break free from that? Man, <laughs> well, let me uh, let me say what what really start, what really put the icing on the cake is uh, when my brother died of an overdose. And I'm not sure if you mentioned this in the in the intro, but uh, for the audience. Uh, my brother was my best friend. He was my only sibling, and he was str- he struggled with addiction. He had that there was that stigma with it. We didn't want to talk about it, so we didn't talk about it. And he moved uh, from from New York to L.A. I was like, "Come be closer to me in L.A. You're struggling out there." And he sobered up for a year and a half, and he was doing really well and a brilliant brilliant guy, working an amazing job, Beverly Hills. And uh, I got a call one day that he didn't show up for work. It's like, man, it's not like him. And uh, so. The worst part about his story is just that he died. They died of an overdose. That he died alone, and uh, and naked, in in his cold bedroom, and, and tucked away in the Hollywood Hills. The worst part is that he was found by me. Hmm. That I got the call that he didn't show up for work. I took the initiative to go to his house. I go to his bedroom door and I called his phone one last time, and I could hear the cell phone ringing on the other side and no answer. And so I just kind of braced myself for the worst, kicked the door in, and there he was. He'd been dead for three days. And um, <clears throat> that's when things, you know, really got worse after that. Um, that was in December 2008, and we packed up and got out of L.A. in 2009. 
um, and moved here to Nashville, where we've been since 2009. And I thought, new, fresh, new start. Let's get out of California. I don't need that anymore. Let's try to. Uh, we had our firstborn son out there, and let's try to set up a, a new life and, and leave the Playboy Mansions and the you know SB Awards and the BMI Music Awards with Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters and all these cool uh, hanging out with The Rock and you know I mean like cool stuff <laughs> and to. to just leave that behind and come start something new here in Nashville. It just got worse here. Just got worse. So um, it was your intention to leave that all behind and and also at that point give up, you know, try to get sober and, no, and maybe get well, some help. No, I didn't know. I didn't, well, that know, wasn't part of the I didn't know how bad I was. Mm, you know, when okay. you're in it, you're just you're just surviving. Yeah. I was taking the pills and and, and all the drugs and alcohol just to maintain, just to try to survive, to not kill myself some days. You know, how am I going to get out of bed when you just found your brother dead? And, you know, I mean, that's, it's hard to get out of bed when you, and try to go build a life and go, go to a job and, and sit at a, you know, I, I end up getting an office job and sitting at a cubicle and, and I just need the drugs just to maintain. And you start, you take that drug, you take the drugs and alcohol away. Now I'm really, yeah, now I'm really, uh, agitated and irritated. So I just kind of – until I didn't have any consequences. That's the thing is I didn't have any real consequences, no DUIs other than relationship issues. It wasn't until I got uh, fired by Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey, the uh, radio, um, you know, get out of debt, uh, total money makeover guy, helps people get out of debt, great Christian uh, gentleman, runs a very tight ship at his organization. Tight, and, tight recruiting process, right? Yes, so Very yes. discerning. Seven interviews, and I put on the act. All the acting classes that I was taking paid off wonderfully for me to put on the act that I can get through seven interviews with a really hardcore uh, interview process over four and a half months. And I had people fooled, and I got in there, and it was less than a year that uh, <clears throat> that was the breaking point. That was the turning point for me is getting called into Dave Ramsey's office and him sitting me down face-to-face and going, look, you obviously have a problem. You need help. I can't help you, but I can go. I can let you go. I can let you go get the help that you need. So that was a huge moment for me, a huge relief, really, to go. Oh my gosh, this thing's way bigger than me. I can't. I can't keep playing this game anymore. And that was in 2011, and that started started my road to recovery. And um, it's been a learning process ever since, for sure. <laughs> it hasn't been pretty, man. I ended up going through multiple treatment centers. Um, multiple holidays away from family. I've missed kids' birthdays. I've missed kids. Uh, I've been in you know treatment over Christmas, over Thanksgiving. Um, I've uh, lived in a trailer. My wife kicked me out after uh, my second round of uh, treatment that failed. She said, get out of here. Um, we have a nice house here that I get to uh, live in today, but it hasn't always been like this. So I got kicked, uh, kicked out and was living in a, in a, in a mold-infested trailer um, for a while. And, uh, so started to get some consequences and that was good for me. That was good for me. So in the time that we have left today, John, tell us a little bit about your new life here where you're committed to helping others and the things that you're doing to help those that are struggling with addiction. So, yeah, man, I'm so blessed to be able to, uh, to host a podcast through addiction campuses. Um, I'm a graduate of one of our uh, programs. We have, uh, four residential treatment facilities throughout the country, um, and uh, people can just go to addictioncampuses.com and, and check those out. And uh, I've been sober since I, I went to our Dallas facility called the Treehouse and got the zipline courses and, and all that stuff. But it, it wasn't 
the art therapies and things there. It was the staff. The staff was so much more compassionate there than the other treatment centers I went to, which is what made me want to come work for them. And um, so I just walked in with a resume and said, please, I, I will work for free. And uh, within two years, I'm doing the High Sobriety podcast. We've had um, multiple members of the band Corn on. Uh, actually, the, the drummer for Corn uh, lives right down the street from me here. We've had him on, uh, he and his wife. I'm actually on the board of a new nonprofit called Rebel for a Change. And um, it's started by the, the drummer for Corn's wife. And it's to help support families struggling with addiction. So if you want to donate or go check it out, it's called Rebel for a Change. Brand new. All there is a landing page right now behind the scenes doing some amazing things to uh, to get some awesome fundraisers uh, uh, that we're going to have out um, in the coming months. But um, so I'm able to, to be a part of that. And then um, when I so when I got fired by Dave Ramsey, he let me go. The great thing was is he, he let me go. I earned that. But I had no resource to, to go to in terms of treatment. I needed treatment, obviously, but there was no resource, no pamphlet. Hey, John, here's a here's a place to start. That's what I wish I had when I got kicked out the door. So now I have started uh, the drug-free workplace program at addiction campuses. And there are about seven or eight states across the country that offer uh, businesses, companies, uh, discounts on their workers' comp annual premiums if they are a certified drug-free workplace. And each state has different laws and, and regulations but in Tennessee, it's um, a 5% discount, and I come in and do the training for free. It's a one-hour training where I share my story and share some statistics and share about trauma and about how people can um, – if, if they know somebody that's struggling, whether it's them in their workplace or a family member that, at home that's struggling, we talk about the same stuff that we talked about today, just a, a disconnection, get people reconnected and let people know that there are treatment options available. Um and so I get to do that on a – I just landed uh, city of Franklin where I live here in, right outside Nashville, uh, Franklin. I'm going to be doing their drug-free workplace for the entire city uh, for about 750 employees um, in a couple of months. I just uh, had that meeting yesterday, and I'm thrilled that God's – you know, that's just – I can go and share a little bit for an hour to 750 people. And, you know, the ripple effect of that, uh, for what you and I do, we're one voice doing one, you know, little that we can each and every day. And the ripple effect is, is really going to change how people view the stigma of addiction and ultimately save lives. So um, <clears throat> going to save jobs and, and ultimately lives by uh, the drug-free workplace program at addiction campuses. Outstanding. That's really exciting. Really yeah, exciting. it's fun. Yeah. It's cool. So, John, to conclude today, what do you want the our listeners to take away from this podcast? I would love for folks to just understand you're not alone. No matter what you're going through, we're all going through stuff. But get connected. Get connected to a community. Get connected, whether it's through your church. You know what? Church wasn't working for me. Sure, I grew up in the church, and it wasn't working for me at where I was in my recovery. And um, I, I started uh, seeking more of a less of a church relationship and more of a spiritual relationship, and that has worked for me. I've, I've implemented meditation, um, uh, yoga, things like this. So, guys, just uh, we got to get connected. And it's so easy these days with our cell phones and in technology to uh, appear connected to everybody in the world all at once when we're really not even connected to ourselves. And so I encourage people um, to, to find ways to, to reconnect with yourself and, and ultimately with the a, with a higher, higher power of your understanding. And to me, that's God. So that would be my suggestion, guys. Don't, don't, go, through, don't go through this life alone and isolated and think that social media is going to connect you because it's not. 
My guest today has been John Mabry, who serves as the Director of Public Outreach and is the host of High Sobriety Podcast for the Addiction Campuses. John has truly taken his life that has been filled with ups and downs, A-listers, and unimaginable tragedy, and turned it into a real success where he's giving back to the community and to others that are struggling with addiction. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.